0: little league baseball coach was talking with one of his players and the coach asked the boy he said do you know what cooperation is what it means to be a team and the little boy looks at him with his little cap on and he nods yes he said good the coach said do you understand that what really matters is that it's not whether we win but if we win we win as a team and if we lose we lose as a team and The little boy sat there with his little glove and his little hand and his little cap on his head and he nods you know he understands. The coach continued. He says, so when you're at bat and a pitch is called a strike or if you're called out at first, then you don't argue with the umpire or cuss him out. Do you understand that? The little boy stood there, you know, with little, band, little gloves, little hat and nods. He says, good, good. He says, that, that's good, said the coach. Now, he said, can you go explain all that to your mother? Umpires. Job chapter 9 and verse 33, Job asks, nor is there a mediator, an umpire, a judge, to lay hands on the two of us, referencing back to his question of chapter 9 and verse 2, where he says, how can a man be in the right before God? How does that happen? How could that happen? Job is speaking, remember, Bildad, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago. Bildad spoke to Job and has just spoken to him in chapter 8. Here in chapter 9 is Job's response. uh, And it's a prayer, basically. It's a a kind of coming to grips with things. Job is going to praise God for his power. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's going to be um, humbled. He asks there in 9 and verse 2, who can stand before God? And it's a soul searching. Job says, I am undone. I am unwrapped before God, as all of us should be. This Hebrew writer says that the word the of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between, uh, joint and marrow and, 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 and to lay us bare before, uh, before God. So Job wrestles with a couple of things here. So let's look at that if we could i kind of kind of walk around in the text for a moment before we get those takeaways that we've looked for each week. First thing in verses 1, one through 13 of chapter 9, Job says, I can't contend with God. In other words, I'm not on the same playing field. It's, I'm not on the same level. Uh, it says in verse 1, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Man is no match for God. Look at Job's observations uh, in verses 4 through 13. And as you read down through there, I'm just going to summarize them if I could. It says in verse 4, God is wise and mighty. Verse 5, God removes mountains. Verse 6, God shakes the earth. Verse 7, God controls the heavenly bodies. Verse 8, God has put the heavens in place as well as the oceans. Verse 9, God has named the stars. Verse 10, God is beyond comprehension. Verse 11, God is beyond my vision or understanding. Verse twelve: God is all powerful and answers to no one. Verse thirteen: God will not withdraw His anger until the allies of the proud lie at His feet. Meaning, not only does He defeat His enemies, but those who support the enemies, and so He makes His victory complete. Job says, "Then I can't continue. I can't. I can't play in that league. It would be like us uh, if we were if we were." Um, uh, football players, since we're doing the playoffs now, uh, like football players, it'd be like us taking the field um, with a professional team. Their talents are so far above ours. But this is more than that. This is God, and no one can t- contend with God because not only do we not compare to Him, not only do can we not contend with Him or be on the same plane. He is so far above us that that we can't really match Him in any way. Which leads to the second thing in verses 14 through 35. He says, if I can't contend with him, then I cannot answer him. And he's talking to Bill that here. He says, you know, Bill, says, you know, there are all these questions out there about you, Joe. He says, and we can only draw some conclusions by what we see, which is oftentimes how people do things. They see things and they connect the dots. Right? I do this with my kids at school a lot. I'll, I'll draw nine dots, okay, uh, and, and I'll put them on the board and it says, what is that? And a lot of them will raise their hand and say, it's a square. So, well,. Okay, And I said, actually, it's just nine dots. I said, so why would it be a square to you? And they said this, when you what? Connect the dots. Okay? You can connect the dots in a lot of different ways. Okay? It could be a series of, of I say, how many squares are in, are in those nine dots? Have you ever played that game before? Try that sometime. <coughs> you do nine dots and figure out how many squares are in there. And there's more than one. There's more than one way of looking at how people connect the dots. We'll get to that in a moment as well. But Job's argument argument is that all suffer. He has seen that. Ellison observes it this way. He says, we normally see what we want to see. And we overlook or minimize that which does not suit our theories. It doesn't fit our conclusion, if you will. When Job had to suffer, his eyes were open to the suffering around him. People suffer like I do unnecessarily. People suffer who shouldn't suffer, but they do anyway. When Job had to suffer, his eyes were open, and he felt the smart of the injustice, for he saw for the first time clearly the prevalence of injustice around him. To say that is to say this, and I I thought about it a long time, and I finally figured it out, and I thought about you. There is not a mathematical consistency or exactness to suffering. There is not always a conclusion to work back to the proof of how it happened. Think about that for a moment. More often than not, and I know when I was in school, um, I would be studying, and, and we were in geometry class, and we would always look at whatever we were given and said, "Now prove how that works." Well, to do that, you had to look at the conclusion and then work backwards to how it got to that point. It was always exact. There's always a reason, you know, for the existence kind of thing. Works in science as well, and kind I of think doesn't work in suffering. Doesn't work in relationships. There's not always this happens, then this happens. And Job realizes that. There is, however, a dawning realization that suffering or not, life continues to pass swiftly. And he says it this way. He uses three word pictures in verses 25, and 26. He says, time goes like a runner. Time goes like a swift ship. Time goes like an eagle after its prey. In other words, while we're sitting trying to figure out why or to, to, to explain how or to do this, the sands are still falling through the hourglass. In other words, the breaths that you take, the time that you spend trying to explain what it is that is unexplainable is lost to you. You never get it back. Not to say that we don't sit and ponder. Not to say that we don't, um, that we don't question and try to find answer. Not, not to say that we don't observe and, as 2 Corinthians 13 says, t- test ourselves to see if we are of the faith, if we are doing something wrong, perhaps. But the bottom line comes to this, is that if we continue to dwell in that place, we are simply wasting our breaths and our time trying to explain something that has no cause or no, no seeming reason to us. Having said that, Job cannot explain his suffering. He cannot stop the sands through the hourglass of life, but he does see the consequences of his choices. Look with me, if you would, in verses twenty-seven to thirty-three, Job chapter nine, verse twenty-seven. In essence, Job says, "If I pretend that everything is okay and change my attitude, and pretend that nothing is wrong, he says, my friends will still consider me will not consider me innocent; they'll still consider me guilty." So here's the here's the idea: you can you can You can try to ignore the situation pretending that nothing is wrong while the world is crashing in around us is an action of denial how many times have you heard people say in their suffering it's okay they'll look at you and they'll they'll, they'll, they'll talk to them and say is there anything that I can do and they'll say it's okay right how many of you have ever heard that yeah you ever said that sure why? Because we can't change it. It's not going away. But we just, you know, if we, if we just think, you know, if I had a better attitude, if I just looked at it in a different way, if I just deny that anything's a problem here, and it's a, and to be honest, it's not to take away that. It's simply that that's not wanting to address the issue. In the face of life's troubles, nobody's buying it. We can look at you Each other, and we can see it's not okay. So what you're doing is lying to us. You're saying it's okay, and that somehow is supposed to release us. You know, and you still carry the burden, and that's kind of selfish. To be honest, that's kind of selfish. God gave us each other as a family of faith to bear one another's burdens. Galatians chapter six says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If I look at you and I say, "Hey, are you all right?" You go. it's okay. Then you have denied me the privilege of carrying your burden as I am to be a part of your life. And so I cannot fulfill the law of Christ in my life, nor in yours. Now, and it doesn't change anything. Whereas a burden shared sometimes is a load half. That's a good one. You need to write that down. It's a good bumper sticker, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. It sounds almost kind of like Benjamin Franklin. You know I mean? A burden shared is sometimes a load halved. All right? People still talk, you still suffer. I can't change what other people say about this situation. A lot of times people are worried about, well, what are other people going to think? Honestly, don't care. They're going to think what they think anyway. Am I not right? Yeah? Job says, well, maybe if I just change my attitude here. And if I just change it and I just say, well, it's okay. It's one, not okay. And second of all, you're doing it because you just want other people to stop talking about you. And the third thing is, is that you're not going to stop them talking about you. And you're not going to stop the suffering. So why say it's okay? Make sense? So the conclusion is, be honest. Be honest. Talk to the people you need to talk to. But, verse Verse 29. He says, if I'm condemned already, then why do I labor in vain? Why do I do this? If there's no hope and people perish, then where is the reward for my faithfulness? Job says, where is the reward for my faithfulness? And this is that God owes me attitude where I'm here in the pew. Every time the doors open, I'm here in Bible class. I do the work. I do the things. And God owes me because I showed up. Oh, I traveled down a lonely road. And no one seemed to care. The burden on my weary back had bowed me to despair. I did so much for Jesus. He owed a lot to me. I'm making it up now. You know. I, you see where I'm going with that? All right. And then Jesus comes and he says, I carried a cross. I got on that cross. And I died for you. Really? Seriously? I owe you something? Now, having said that, though, God knows you. He doesn't owe you, but He knows you. I've often found comfort in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Turn over there with me. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. I know God doesn't owe me, but He knows me. And when I say that, I mean this. In my suffering sometimes, when it's not okay... I still remain faithful, not because I want God's reward, but because He remembers. He remembers His faithful. It says in Hebrews 6 and verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. You see, what others think and what God remembers can be two totally different things altogether. All right? For instance, we often think of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Yes? Okay. So how many of you, just let me take a straw poll here. How many of you, when you think of King Solomon, think positive or negative? Positive. Just off the top of your head. King Solomon. Positive. Right? Yes. Okay? The guy who died with 300 wives and 600, 600 wives, concubines, and his heart was, was, was led astray from God and died in a miserable condition. Manasseh, okay? One of the most evil kings in Israel's history, right? Okay? Most evil king. Positive or negative? Okay, how many people would say negative? Most everybody, yeah. The Bible says that when he died, he was more faithful to God than when when he was living. I mean, at the end of his life, he was more faithful to God. He turned it around. Nobody ever tells the rest of that story. The reason I tell you that is this. Sometimes... What people think of us and what God remembers about us are two different things. What you want to be is the person God remembers, not the person everybody else applauds. Right? And Job says here, he says, you know, what, what is my labor for? You are to remain faithful to God even if you can't explain the situation you're in. If you have no answers for what you're facing, you remain faithful to God anyway verse 30 job says if i wash my if it was my face in cold water job says that even if he washes up then his friends are there to throw him back into the mud hole seems that job has arrived at a, at, a, at a conclusion that he cannot answer god's purposes nor can he control the actions of his friends it's like splashing your face with cold water it's a wake up call all right Look at it as, thanks, I needed that. Y'all remember that commercial? You know, you know, slapped him on the face and said, thanks, I needed that. You now, Job says, you know what? This is that moment, isn't it? All right? I needed to remember that the reality about life is that it moves swiftly. I'm missing some important moments here by trying to figure out what other people are thinking. Or trying to, to work that in. Or trying to explain why I'm going through what I'm going through. I'm losing some time here suffering it happens to us all we are not the lone ranger this is not an isolated incident and we are a group here that knows that together collectively and relying upon others to explain things to you they have their opinions but they aren't necessarily God's in other words don't judge your life by everybody else's opinion of you you decide what's right by God's will Job laments in chapter 9 and verse 33 he says, "Oh, that I could have a spokesperson, an umpire, a judge, or an old English." And I like this. If you have those those um, uh, thingy patty things, yeah, that him, yeah. have a pad, you can look that up in different translations. In the old Coverdale, uh, Coverdale, or the old Tyndall, it says, "I need a daysman." And I thought, "What is that?" Okay. Well, a daysman or a daysman, okay. Was the same as an umpire, referee. It comes actually from the word uh, to decide. Okay, in Hebrew the word is asman. Okay, and what they did was just simply kind of just borrow it over, kind of thing, kind of like baptism. They just borrowed it over from the language and just said a daysman. Okay, so the translation is here: one who could argue, or to decide, or to convince. I need an umpire, referee, if you will, uh, to do that for me, which is translated or there in the Old English, um, does that. And so I need someone to advocate for me, someone who is impartial, Who, and this is how it literally worked. He said there would be someone here and someone here, and they wanted to, to settle something, and the days man or the umpire referee, the, the judge, if you will, would place one hand here and one hand here, and as the, as the established authority would decide what is right in this instance. Are you, are you justified in feeling this way? And are you wrong or right in what you're doing? Right? Job says, I don't have that. I don't have a days man. I don't have an umpire referee. I don't have somebody who is, he said, I can't contend with God. He's way above me. Who is the equal to God who would be able to do that? No one. There's no one here that I have. You can, you can kind of hear the despair in his soul, can't you? It's that idea that I, I don't have anybody. You know where I'm going with this. So um, let's go straight to the takeaways then. Who can bring their case before God? Job knows that he can't. He can't be on the same level. There's no one that he knows of human of his human existence who could. We all need someone to stand on our behalf. We need someone to speak up for us. And that's why we have letters of references written here in, in this life. From Job's perspective, he's looking for someone, and that leads us to the first takeaway. Takeaway number one what Job didn't have, what we as Christians do have, is a mediator, Jesus Christ. Everybody take a deep breath. Wow. Isn't that a great feeling? Okay? He is the one who came, who was the Son of God and the Son of Man. He bridged the gap. Someone who is God, so he can contend with that. But someone who understands us, who walked in our shoes, literally. Let's take you through some, some scriptures, write these down, and you can read them later. But I'll just tell you what they are and you can read them. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I think the greatest takeaway you can can have tonight is the fact that we have what Job didn't. We have a mediator, a referee, an umpire, someone to contend for us. And that's Jesus Christ, sent from the Father for our purposes. Second takeaway. Jesus brings to us the peace of God that rules our heart. The peace of God that rules our heart. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. In this verse it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Did the peace of Christ literally Christ's peace is the rule, and the word rule there in the original literally means the arbiter, the umpire the referee get where I'm coming from there? now I've bridged the gap from Job to Jesus haven't I? from Job to Jesus to you Jesus is our mediator before God his peace umpires our life you want to know on a practical basis? this is it alright? The peace of God umpires our life. That's how I know on an everyday basis. We talked this morning at length about, about how Jesus became our sacrifice. And that He sits at the right hand of God and He is our mediator between God and man. But how does that work out in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth and I'm having these thoughts that I shouldn't have about someone that I shouldn't have them, you know, and I'm furrowing my brow or I'm thinking about going to work, and I know there's going to be this situation where, or I had this. Thing going on in my, my and I'm suffering and I don't know what to do about it and it weighs heavy on my mind and I, and I fret about it. Okay, that's a great word, fret. It means to worry with purpose. Okay, uh, it just kind of you kind of it's kind of having the scab on your on your arm that you keep picking at. That's fretting. Okay, you keep picking, picking, picking until it's a sore again. All right, we keep worrying about something. How do I let the peace of Christ umpire what I think and what I do? Let's talk about that. First of all, the peace of Christ that rules in us is determines or decides how we accept certain circumstances. Okay? How, do I, how do I accept certain circumstances that I cannot change or that I could change but don't know if I'm doing it right or not? The peace of Christ is our umpire, our referee, the one who reminds us of the rules that keeps us inside the will of God. Because the peace of God is the result of Christ being our Savior. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the experience of peace in our soul, in union with Christ, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, will address the difficulty and conflict reminding us of the will of God. We have to get inside the will of God. The reason sometimes that we are unsettled is because we know we're living outside of the will of God. How do I know that I'm inside the will of God? Well, part of it is that I know the will of God, which is His Word, okay? But the peace of Christ okay, rules or umpires my life to know that when I'm, out of, when I'm not in peace, okay, when my soul's not at peace, something's not right here, something's not how it should be, that I need to relook how I'm making my decisions or where I am in my soul. Rather than it's okay, perhaps we should be saying, I'm at peace in my soul. There's a difference, isn't there? It's okay is a, is a phrase of denial that doesn't allow others to be a part of what you're going through. I'm at peace in my soul, says that whatever you want to do to join me in this is wonderful, but I know where I'm going, and I know how I'm getting there, and I know what the the result will be. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, but that doesn't always work, Scott. Hey, tell me when it doesn't. Tell me you're on, you have a loved one or yourself, and you know that their time is limited on this earth. Rather than them saying it's okay, if not, they were to say, I'm at peace with my soul, as far as God's will is concerned. Now all of a sudden I think I'm okay with them going that journey and me going with them. Does that make sense? What if what if I were changing situations in life? Okay? And I wasn't at peace in my soul. Something's not right. Something vital is missing. Something isn't matching up with what I know the will of God to be. Then I need to stop that, don't I? I need to stop going that way. You go, well, that's your conscience. I go, well, that's my enlightened common sense. Okay? The Holy Spirit guiding me through God's word into peace in my soul. It may not be okay. So I need to stop. But if I have peace in my soul, then I proceed with confidence that where I am going and the way I am going, does that sound like Jesus headed for Jerusalem? The way, you know, you know the way I am going and the reason for me going. And when you look at that, it's a whole different perspective. Knowing the mind of God on the matter, the presence of Christ on our behalf, and the conviction of faith to persevere how He directs, makes all the difference in the world. Because Christ is our mediator, we can now have peace of Christ ruling our hearts. Secondly, it's how we weather those circumstances. Not only how we understand them, but how we weather them. It says, and let the peace of Christ, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. There's a special reason for that divine peace. It's the unity of the body. He says it right there in 3 verse 15. Look at what he said. People often discount church. I can do it by myself, they say, I can do it by myself. I don't need anyone else. You're wrong. I'm just going to tell you, you're wrong. Those people down there won't understand. Those people down there don't care. Those people down there, and anytime you use the words those people in referencing the church... You have just cut yourself off from the one thing that the rule that the peace of Christ can do to help you. The peace of Christ rules or umpires your life, not only because we're connected to the Savior, but because we're connected to each other. That's what he said. It's what he said. It's why I'm saying this. Because I am thankful, he says. I am thankful that Jesus mediates on my behalf. I am thankful. For the the peace that He fills my heart with when I'm walking in His will. But I am thankful for you. Because when the wheels fall off, as we're often to say around here, when the wheels fall off, where do I go? What do they do? We pray. How does that help? How does it hurt? What happens next? We don't know. But we stand with you. We walk with you. We suffer, we cry, we rejoice. Whatever it takes, we would do that with you. Am I right? That's why I bring this lesson to congregation this side. Because you folks are the people that I would pick up the phone and call. In fact, you're the people that I pick up the phone and call. But so do you, don't you? Because that's who you are what gets us through those things. There is a, there is a when we are one with Christ and also with other Christians called into this body, Paul says, there's no question as to the great power of divine peace in our lives. I've told you this story before, and I say it again. There was a time in my life, and there was a time in my life when I made it literally from Sunday to Wednesday, Wednesday to Sunday, Sunday to Wednesday, Wednesday to Sunday, because everything else in my life was a shambles. It was It was garbage. It was terrible. It was dark. It was heavy. And all I knew is that if I could make it to Wednesday night, I would be okay. And if I could make it until the next Sunday morning, you want to know why I love Bible class? I love Bible class because we talk about Bible. It's better than talking about me all the time. Ever thought about that? I can't remember, to be honest, I can't remember a lot of the Bible lessons that were taught to me. But I remember the teachers. I remember the people in the class. And I remember just the warmth of fellowship. Sometimes I remember leaving and thinking, if I can just make it to the next meeting, I'll be okay. I want to tell you something. There are times in your life when it's important that you be in Bible class. So you can make it to worship. When you can make it from Sunday morning worship to Sunday night worship because you can't breathe. And there are times when you make it from Sunday night to Wednesday night because if you can hold your breath long enough in your soul, you might make it there before you can relax and kind of go, I'm saved." Am I right? Tell me I'm wrong. You know what I'm talking about. Turn over to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter 4, will close with these thoughts. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, there it is again, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do we weather those circumstances in the church family? He says, chapter 4, verse 4, Our joy is restored. Our circumstances are handled with gentleness. Our connection to God is clearer and closer. Our worries are overcome with prayers the peace of God is not only our umpire, according to Galatians three, verse fifteen, but here it is our guard for our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And you'll get that anywhere else. You know, I could do that at home. No, you can't. You can't do that by yourself at home, on a mountain, on the back of a pickup truck, somewhere out in the middle of the field. You can't do that by yourself. I know that because God just said it happens here. You take that message to everyone who needs to hear it. It's why we come together. An umpire named Babe Pinelli once called Babe Ruth out on strikes. When the crowd booed with sharp disapproval at the call, the legendary Ruth turned to the umpire with disdain and said, there's 40,000 people here who know that that last pitch was a ball. Suspecting that the umpire would erupt with anger, the coaches and the players braced themselves for Ruth's ultimate ejection from the game. However, the cool-headed Pinelli just simply replied, maybe so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that can. At the end of the day, folks, it's not what everybody else thinks. It's not about what you think. It's about what God thinks. And unlike Job, who despaired at having no umpire, no referee in his sufferings, I thank God that his son, Jesus Christ, is my mediator. And it's his opinion that counts. And he went to the cross because he believes that I belong heaven and that's how precious you are and he said upon this rock I will build my church that's why I believe the church is that important because he died for me to be a part of his body the church it's where I know his presence it's where I know his peace and we offer that to you this evening now there's a message you can go out and share with people, isn't it? There's some good news, isn't it? And those are the takeaways we have tonight. But maybe it's more important you take away something else tonight. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to repent of sin. Maybe we can join you in prayer before God's throne. Whatever we can do to help you tonight. Would you come to the front and make your deed to Together we stand and as we sing.